You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Jenny Williamson. I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. And we are joined today by Liv Albert from Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. Hi, Liv. Hi, Liv. Hi. How are you guys? Thank you for having me. We're so, so good. Thank you for coming on the show. We are so thrilled to have you here. Always, always. I guess some of you might have heard a champagne pop at a certain point in time. Hmm. Wonder what that could be about, Jenny. Yes, you may have heard a champagne pop. It was actually a Prosecco pop at the beginning of this episode. That is a celebratory bottle of Prosecco, the cheapest possible, because we have a very special announcement to make. We do! I'm so excited. Do you want to say it? Do you want me to say it? Oh, you can say it, but I just want to say first, like, we have had to keep this a secret for so long, and I am so bad at keeping secrets. I know. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it. We're writing a book! Yay! A real one, published by a real publishing house, Simon & Schuster. I know, our voices are going real screechy and high, and I apologize, but also, I don't. (laughs) I get screechy anyway when I get excited, so, I mean, this is just over and beyond. We are writing a book. It's called Women of Myth. It's about women in mythology from cultures all around the world, and it's coming out with Simon & Schuster in August 2022. Very exciting. Congratulations. It's so exciting. Well done. Thank you. We're so thrilled. I have to keep pinching myself and saying, like, you wrote a book. How did this happen? How? I don't even know. So let's talk about how this came about, ladies, because we were in Greece and Liv was with us. And Liv was such a big part of it, which is why we wanted you to come on and announce with us. So we were in Greece and we had been approached by Simon & Schuster by Liv's editor, who did her wonderful books with her, her Greek mythology handbook. And also her book, which will be out very soon, Nectar of the Gods, which has just the nerdiest and best and most exciting cocktails in it. I've already pre-ordered mine and I hope you all have done as well. I have also pre-ordered mine and I was an official cocktail taster and so was Jen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just love the punny names. I was here for all of them. Anyway, so Liv's editor was looking for someone on this project and we were approached by her and asked to submit a proposal and we did but the story of the proposal is really interesting one of us in this group is a terrible procrastinator don't know who it could be it's definitely jenny (laughs) it's totally jenny jenny is the sort of person who never ever gets anything done on time it's true fact people have to drag me to my deadlines kicking and screaming we were approached so we wrote the proposal for this book when we were together In Greece, we sat down at this incredible cafe in Athens, and there was wine and Aperol spritzes, 
And we got so excited about the research for this book. And we just had an entire day nerding out writing this proposal. That was the day I discovered Eats Papa Lotl, and my life was never the same after that. Well, we were sitting at this restaurant writing this proposal, and the Aperol spritzes just kept coming, and we were having amazing Greek salads, and we were writing a real book proposal to a real publisher in an amazing outdoor restaurant in Athens. I can't ask for anything better than that. So we wrote this proposal. Liv was with us. We were nerdily reading out stuff, shouting at each other about, like, we have to have this person in, and we need to do this. And what about this? I have to admit, I did not pay too close attention to the proposal itself. I was sort of just there, like, giggling along at your lunacy and writing on my own end. It was very entertaining and enjoyable. As somebody who also had to write a proposal, it was kind of interesting to watch because you just had such a similar experience to mine. But obviously, it was so different because you were like learning all of these new people at the same time as you were writing this proposal. Like, so I was just kind of like watching and smiling from afar. (laughs) Well, you'd been through the process too. So you kind of knew what it was like. And Liv was very generous. She let us take a peek at her previous proposal. So we had kind of a guidepost about how to do things. And it all worked in the end. It was just this incredible experience of being with Jenny and Liv and having this moment that I've waited my whole life for. To write it with Jenny is just the most incredible dream because somehow we have had this podcast for almost four years and not killed each other. That is the biggest mystery of my life is, oh my God, we still talk to each other. I can't believe it. Yeah. And to have lived there guiding us, it was just, it was amazing. And then we kind of sent everything off and, you know, having worked in publishing, I know it can take a really long time to hear about anything. So I wasn't anticipating we'd hear about it for quite a long time. And then we got the surprise, another surprise of our trip, which was the day we went to Knossos. Right. So we were in Knossos. This is this is the best because this actually tops the proposal writing experience. I just get really absorbed when I'm at, you know, historical sites that I'm really interested in. So I'm just like wandering around and reading all the plaques and trying to peer into every single nook and cranny that I possibly can because I just want to experience all of it. And like, Jen and Liv were kind of across the way at this other part of the site and they were like shouting at me. But like also trying not to shout too loudly across an ancient ruin. We were like trying to be respectful while also being like, Jenny, Jenny. Clearly, I just did not notice that they were doing this for a while and then like eventually realized and I was like, what? Is it money? And like, (laughs) (laughs) like, okay, well, technically, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They both looked very excited. So I was like, it must be money. And I kind of like I'm the sort of person that if I send something off, I then pretend it doesn't exist so that I don't I don't stress about it. So I wasn't thinking about the proposal like we'd done it like weeks ago at this point. This was towards the end of the trip. So they waved me over and I came over and Jen had the email on her phone and she showed me the email and we were just jumping up and down. We were so excited and we were at Knossos finding out we were going to write a book. With Simon & Schuster. About mythology. About mythology. And it was just so, and not Western mythology too. So it was just the dream. It was so exciting. Yeah. Actually getting to write about mythology from all across the world, different cultures, including ancient cultures. It was an incredible moment. I got to spend it with Jenny and Liv. There were many hugs. Probably a bit too much shouting for, you know, an archaeological site, but there was shouting. (laughs) It's an outdoor one. It's fine. It's outdoor archaeological site. It's fine. There were peacocks. They were louder. I think as long as we were keeping it to the volume established by the peacocks, probably okay. So that was our big news. It was hugely exciting. We knew about this back in September, but of course, we weren't allowed to say anything until now. It's been such an unreal experience. And to top everything off, we're working with the illustrator, Sarah Richard. She's the artist who did the illustrations on both of Liv's books. 
and she is just outstanding. All of her artwork is just incredible. Oh my God, so incredible. She's really brought something new and vibrant and exciting to the stories of the women who are included. There's about 50 entries and about 30 illustrations. They are just next level. She's just so phenomenally talented. It was so exciting because we broke our entries up about half and half. I got really attached to mine. So every single one I did when I was doing it was my favorite one, you know? So I was just so excited about all my entries. And then I would see the illustrations that Sarah did. And I would just get so excited because I was so invested in these women and their stories now. So I feel very attached to all the illustrations. And I hope you guys love them when the book comes out. You're going to see the Morgan sweeping across the battlefield with an epic cloak of skulls and war that must have been huge for sarah because she is so all about the death and the skulls and making them beautiful and wild like i just can think of the ones in mind yeah i can only imagine that's so true jen and i were like wow she really likes drawing skulls i'm like there's so many skulls oh yeah that's like sarah's like trademark and i absolutely love it Oh man, me too. I do. And there are some characters that we did uh, entries about were actual skeletons. So I'm sure that she was (laughs) excited about that. One of the most amazing things about this project is as much as we tried really hard, we only had 50 entries, mind you, to get as much diversity across the world featuring different stories of women from different regions. There is a common word that you see in mythology about women almost Every single woman is described this way, even the monstrous women. They're always described as being beautiful. You can't just edit that out or focus on other things, really, because often the beauty is central to the story. I think the word is a very loaded word. So when we were asking about the artwork, what Jenny and I really worked hard on was to make sure that we had some body diversity within the artwork, because I can't stand seeing the word beautiful and then seeing all the characters drawn as wayfish and all looking the same as if beauty is one thing. Not that I ever would have thought that Sarah would do that because she's an outstanding, incredible artist. We did talk to Sarah about this and we think she's done such a good job. We wanted to have illustrations that showcased very diverse ideas about what beauty looks like. So we were thinking about size diversity, diversity of gender presentation, diversity of skin tone, all that sort of stuff, just to make sure that we were getting cultural beauty standards that varied. One of my favorite illustrations is Ishtar. So um, I just loved the the job that Sarah did because um, in Ishtar's mythology, she is sometimes described as bearded and she has this sort of gender nonconforming aspect to her. So I asked Sarah to do her as like a beautiful woman with a beard and Sarah knocked it out of the park and she's just absolutely stunning. One of my favorites is Atalanta and First off, Adelante is my first love of mythology. But we went to Sarah and we gave her lots of pictures of essentially Olympic athletes. We're like, she is an athlete first and a warrior first. So we want her body to reflect that. She is someone who can like draw back a longbow and run in a foot race. And she needs to be built that way. And Sarah really delivered on that. I bet you she's like Cassandra in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Just super muscled and badass. Yeah. So yeah. So one of the things that's really exciting about this book is that Liv has agreed to write the foreword. Liv is going to write us a really great foreword. We're so excited that she's agreed to do it. You know, we absolutely wouldn't be writing this book without her. Our friendship throughout lockdown and traveling and podcasting has just been such a cornerstone to our growth and development as podcasters and writers. Yeah. 
I'm very excited. I haven't gotten uh, started on it yet because I just got the document so recently. I'm so excited to read it. So I get to write the foreword. Thank you so much for doing that. We're so thrilled that you're part of this. What's a book without a foreword, I ask you? I mean, you know. (laughs) I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So I have questions for you guys. How did you guys decide who was going to write what? Like, did you have to fight over any particular entries or did it come kind of naturally? Like which ones you guys each preferred? Um, I think it came pretty naturally. Jen took all the Greek ones because she was really excited about those. And I think that like we each had ones that we were excited about. Like there were a few that I had already covered for the podcast that I was like, well, I'll just do this one because I know all about it already. And I think Jen had a few of those as well. And then we kind of divided it up by region initially, because if we're doing like all the Japanese ones or, you know, the um, Hindu ones, like I'm already in that mythology. We had a limited time frame to do the writing and we wanted to make sure that we were as authentic and our sources were as good as possible. So we tried to divide things so that we were immersed in that area of the world and really understood the stories and the characters. Yeah, that makes sense. You wouldn't want to be like doubling up on the research unnecessarily and and things like that. Really being able to like dive in deeper. Yeah. And be able to do it that way. Yeah. And that's kind of what we do with the podcast as well. It's super important that we get it right. One of the people we covered is Dear Woman, who's so fascinating. Like when you get to her entry, she has a real link to the violence enacted against particularly Indigenous women in North America. We have been like so careful to make sure that we tell those stories and we also give some of that context. That was the one thing we really liked about this book is it let us tell you things about the context of some of these women and how their legends still grow and change today for a lot of people. Who, which was your favorite first? Each of your favorites? The one that I knew was going to be my favorite was Atalanta because when I was a little kid reading. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Jen likes Atalanta. I know. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. I told the story many times. Many times I like the wild barefoot girl who likes to beat up on boys and... Barefoot? Bare, she's usually barefoot running, but no, no shoes needed. Barefoot, Jen. No, barefoot. It's a good joke. She's raised by bears. That was a live joke. <laughs> oh, God. See, I'm the one who opened the Prosecco and it's gone to my head. And it was immediately a thought that I had too, barefoot. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> right on the same page. <laughs> anyway, is it any surprise that the Leo likes the girl who becomes a lion at the end? No. When I was a young girl, I remember sitting in the back of, I think it was my fourth or fifth grade class, and I was reading a book of Greek mythology. And hers was the first story that really connected with me. Like there were all these beautiful goddesses and princesses. And then I got to Atalanta and I was like, ooh, she's a tomboy. I'm a tomboy. She's pretty rough and tomboy. I am here for this. So when we were doing this book, I really was like, no, she has to be in the book. She was the one I was most excited and anxious to write because I found the people I knew the most about were really scary to me. I was so scared I was going to get something so wrong. I remember that feeling. (laughs) 
just a fun thing I had while um, working through the artwork on Nectar of the Gods with Sarah is that Atalanta has has an illustration in my cocktail book. And the way Sarah had first drawn it, because of the story, the guy, I forget who's the guy who tricks her by throwing the golden apples, but he's like ahead of her and he's throwing the apples back, which is, you know, a big part of the story. But I was like, nah, this is cocktails. Like, we're taking Atalanta back. So I was like, you put her ahead of him. Have him holding the golden apples, sure. But like, nah, she's winning. She's winning. It was such like a slight difference. I'm into it. We got, we got to do this, even in cocktails. Yeah. So Jenny, what, what, what about your favorite? Okay, so I had so many favorites because each time I did one, it was my favorite. It doesn't work that way. That's not what the word favorite means. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about Eats Papa Lotel. Okay. She's one of the first ones that I discovered that I didn't know anything about before, and she was what made me excited to write this book. She is an Aztec warrior goddess, an Aztec skeletal warrior goddess known as the obsidian butterfly, and she has butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. Okay, I fucking love her. (laughs) She's so cool. They had the most badass, hard fucking core warrior goddess. And I think she was associated with flint, which was a material that was really important in making weaponry and knives and things like that. But the obsidian is so cool. I mean, and then we got a volcano links. I love anything with volcanoes. I know Jen does too. Oh, what a thrill. Very cool goddess. So my favorite one that I discovered while writing this, much like Jenny, was Wetika. She is an indigenous South American goddess, and she is the goddess of revelry, of music, of pleasure. And essentially giving the fuck you to the patriarchy. Do you like her because she's like Dionysus? A little bit. But what I like so much more is that she's kind of like ordered to tone it down, to not be like this out and proud and excited woman who's doing what she wants. And she says no. And she has to pay this punishment for it, which is she's turned into an owl, like sometimes in the mythology, other times she's only allowed out at night. But I mean, the joke is on because like the best parties all happen at night. But she's a moon goddess. She's a fertility goddess. There's a very Dionysus feel to her, but she's her own person. And she stands up to to the leader of their gods and says, nope, you're not the boss of me. And I love it. Oh, yeah. She's so cool. So there's another one that's also my favorite. I know I have all the favorites. You can have more than one. I'm just saying you can't have all of them be your favorite. That defeats the purpose. (laughs) So one of my other favorites was Oya. She is a... Yoruba goddess of all kinds of different things the wind and storms and lightning and tornadoes and destruction and also commerce and she's the most incredible goddess she's a warrior goddess and there's this really cool story about how this guy this like god who's the most beautiful man on earth and people just drop dead upon seeing him because he's so beautiful goes and tries to get her interested in marrying him and she's like first you gotta fight me and she kicks his ass and she's so fun one of the things i absolutely love about oya is that she is the goddess of destruction but she's not only a goddess of destruction she's like the goddess of the kind of destruction that comes before transformative change Ugh, that's so cool Yeah, Jenny texted that to me at like 3am my time and I was like, I need her in my life so bad all the time. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I love that. There's so many times in my life 
well, not a lot of times, but there were some times in my life where I had to make this really big change. And it took me really like years to make that change because I was afraid of destroying everything that I had built before. And Oya just comes in and she's like, nope, this has got to go. And she just turns your life upside down and shakes it until everything falls out and you have a clean slate and you get to rebuild. She's a West African goddess. She's kind of tied into the Harmattan wind, which is a like a Western wind that's like very, very strong in the area. Is that the one that goes across the Sahara and causes all those storms? Oh, yeah, it's that one. It's the one we keep talking about that turned everything like literally half the globe red. Yeah, there was that time when the Harmattan wind did that. It like sometimes it's so strong that they have to ground planes. And she's also um, worshipped in African diaspora communities, like in the Caribbean and in South America. So she's like a really important goddess all over the place, like all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, God, <laughs> that's so cool. So, okay, m- more questions. Who were you most anxious to cover like who did you want to get correct who felt the most important i guess to get it like really right i mean here again i hate to be the person who keeps saying all of them but i kind of do feel like that is the answer to this question all of them but especially the stories that were from cultures i I was not familiar with and hadn't covered in the podcast before especially cultures that had been more recently affected by colonization like western colonization I felt like a really big responsibility to try to get those stories right. You know, I really felt like I owed it to the people whose myths they are not to screw it up. And I think this isn't just, you know, my concern. I think this absolutely goes for both of us because we were regularly talking about this and texting about it and thinking about it. It was definitely at the forefront of both of our minds as we were writing these entries. With the caveat, as you know, Liv, there isn't necessarily one right version. There's a lot of different versions. Sometimes they contradict. So we were very aware of that. And also, you know, bearing in mind that even though the book is called Women of Myth, and we did use the word mythology somewhat broadly to refer to all stories of a sort of supernatural nature, some of these stories aren't just mythology, but still part of people's religion today. So I would say that that was a concern for both of us. I said it earlier, and this is very basic, but I mean, a lot of the Greco-Roman goddesses uh, and women that I talked about, I felt a real pressure to get right. And not just to get right from a, their story is correct, but also from a, we have Athena in the book, we have Medusa in the book, we have got Dido, who's Carthaginian, but who comes into the, you know, Roman pantheon via the, the Aeneid. And I wanted to make sure that when I was telling their stories, I wasn't just giving it the same gloss that we've seen in other tellings. I wanted these to be real breathing women who you could side with, who you could feel for, and also who were known for more than just their relations to men and what men did to them. So I felt this pressure, as I said earlier, because I knew the story so well. So those are the ones I was most anxious to cover from that perspective. But then as I was diving into these other cultures, I was incredibly scared to tackle Mulan. Like I knew her story. I knew who she was. Everyone is familiar with her from two Disney movies, probably the less said about them, maybe the better. But she's such an iconic heroine that I was so scared I was going to get something wrong. There is a dragon played by Eddie Murphy, though, right? Like that that's really true in her story, correct? I believe that's canon in the original ballad. Yeah, I, I would think that has to be accurate. I'm just I'm refusing to acknowledge this because now we're ruining childhoods of so many children. 
<laughs> Jen's like, I'm going to pretend you didn't even say that. <laughs> I'm not saying, I think Eddie Murphy as a dragon is great. But yeah, there were there were some real iconic women who I was covering, who I was very scared. I was just going to get their story wrong. But yeah, Mulan, I was terrified. The one that I was the most nervous to cover. Okay, I'm going to tell you about this character who actually turned out to be one of my favorites. Oh my god, you have a favorite? They're all my favorite. (laughs) You need to whip out a dictionary, ma'am. One of the ones that I was the most nervous to cover was in the heroine section. I actually left them for last because I was like, I, you know, I'm not familiar with the mythology, so I'm worried that I'll screw it up and um, that I'm going to tell you this story. It's so amazing. So in the Mahabharata, which is an ancient Indian epic, There is a character who starts off as a cisgender woman named Amba, and Amba, she's in love with this king, and she wants to marry him, but then she gets kidnapped by this guy Bhishma. After that, the person she loves won't marry her, and then Bhishma won't even marry her just because he happened to create this problem for her in the first place, which is extremely rude. (laughs) (laughs) And this man has basically utterly ruined her life, so... She wants to get revenge and she tries everything she can and she tries to get other people on her side and nothing really works. And then so she actually winds up taking her own life to be reincarnated into a life where she gets to kill Bhishma. She becomes reincarnated as a warrior named Shikandi. And Shikandi is so cool because they're gender nonconforming. And I was nervous about this because there are so many different takes and depictions of Shikandi. And some depictions say that Shikandi can be interpreted as a transgender man or perhaps a transgender woman or, you know, perhaps a man, but a very feminine presenting man because he is the later incarnation of a woman and he has all her memories and her soul and her spirit. I wanted to make sure I really got it right because this was a gender nonconforming character that I wanted to represent really well. But I just utterly fell in love with this character and love the story. And I think I covered it pretty well. I hope that people think so. And I was just thrilled that I got to include a gender nonconforming hero slash heroine in this book. So I really loved covering them. They sound fascinating. That's wonderful. Ishtar was another one that when Jenny told me the story of Ishtar, I was like, I am in love with Ishtar and I'm glad you got to cover her. Liv, she is so cool. She goes through the underworld. Why did she go through the underworld? I just remember the himbo at the end. <laughs> it's just it's just because she has a lust for conquest and she wants to conquer the underworld. It's just that, <laughs> which I love about Ishtar. Like, she's just like, nope, I want to conquer the underworld. It's mine now. And her sister, Aresh Kagal, which I know I'm mispronouncing, is the ruler of the underworld. And she obviously just knocks her dead with a glance and then hangs her body on the wall on a hook. Oh, well, I mean... Sounds right. We really don't sugarcoat in this book. So the god Ea, it's spelled E-A, creates two transgender handmaidens, basically, to go into the underworld and rescue Ishtar. So they go into the underworld. They revive Ishtar with a plant. I think it's a plant or an herb or something that Ea gives one of them. And then they're bringing her back out of the underworld. And as they go, they're chased by this mob of demons and the demons are supposed to if ishtar is allowed to escape they have to take someone in her stead 
So Ishtar, as she travels back, she encounters all these people that the demons could drag away to replace her. Like her hairdresser is one of them. I think one of her children is one of them, like various people in her life. And she sees them mourning her and crying. And she's like, no, 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 don't take them. And then she sees her her (laughs) total asshole husband, who is a fertility god and a total himbo and younger than her. He's just frolicking with women and lounging around on her throne, dressed in a fabulous outfit. And she's like, oh, take him. (laughs) So the demons just drag him back to the underworld and he becomes Ereshkigal's consort. And then Ishtar, after about six months or so, she's like, well, you know, I kind of miss him. He was a fun time. I guess he can come back. So what happens is that he winds up coming to Ishtar in the land of the living for six months out of the year and then goes back to Ereshkigal for the other six months of the year. So it's kind of a Persephone myth. Well, the Greeks were highly influenced by that region. Yeah, it's a Dionysus or Persephone myth. It's amazing. As Ishtar is trying to conquer the underworld, she has to give up remnants of like the clothes she's wearing. So by the time she gets to her sister, she's completely naked. And stripped of power because all of the items that she gives up are like emblems of her power. So that's how her sister can knock her dead with a word. I'm very excited. I can't wait. I mean, obviously, my knowledge. I mean, there's a couple where I know a little bit, Ishtar being one of them. But otherwise, beyond... Greek and Roman, actually even just beyond Greek and the ones that are deeply influenced, the Roman myths that are deeply influenced by the Greek, I'm pretty at a loss for other mythologies. So I'm very excited. Some of the characters that I chose to cover across the Greco-Roman world were ones that you had done work on in your podcast and I'd heard your take on Medusa and I was like, everyone needs to actually hear this take as widely as possible because it's in there, it's in literature, it's in the research, it's in the scholarly stuff. And it it gives her a framework that for many, many years, none of us have had. And But the one who I was so excited that we got to include was Dido, the Queen of Carthage from Phoenicia. So she's from modern day Lebanon. She moves to and becomes the Queen of Carthage. And she is just one of these women who, when I was reading the mythology, I only knew about her and her love affair with Aeneas and the Carthaginian when the Punic Wars. But the reality is she is so clever. She is so smart. She founded a city. She founded a city all by herself. But she did it in the cleverest way possible. And not just any city. It's the city that rivals Rome, that kicks its butt several times. So similar to Atalanta. I just, I'm not trying to promote my book, but I just, it's, the connection is so there. No, no, put it in here because this will be right before yours and we should have it. Like, I mean, the combo is great, especially because let's promote Sarah to the ends of the world. And she illustrated both of our books. Absolutely. I'm going to message her tomorrow and be like, I want to buy some prints, please. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, she's a queen. So in the illustration, because Dido also has an illustration in my book, I actually snuck Dido in like she is not Greek. (laughs) Well, and like they wanted me to stick to Greek. They wouldn't even let me use Roman names. And so I I just didn't tell them that Dido isn't Greek. I was like, you don't need to know. It's fine. No, she's not remotely Greek. Sarah, you know, gets the ideas from me, but she doesn't actually read the text before before she does her illustrations, which I also think says so much about her, like, talent. Sometimes she, like, actually added stuff that I left out. Like, I didn't mean to leave it out. She has it in the illustrations. But when it comes to the cocktail, which is, oh, Carthaginian Crown Royal, I also basically made the mixologist, Thea Angst, I had her also include a Canadian (laughs) booze. I had some fun with Dido and Carthage. 
But Sarah just did her own research, you know, on Dido. And so the original illustration had her falling on her sword and the fire, I think. And I was like, nah, we're not doing Dido this way. Like, can we actually just redo this as I want this cocktail to not be about Aeneas? It's about her as the queen of Carthage. And like Aeneas is not important. But what was so nice about the cocktails versus my book is like, I didn't have to be impartial. (laughs) I didn't have to just tell the myths truthfully to the myths. I was like, no, this is a fucking cocktail. Like, we're gonna have some fun. We're gonna like, I'm gonna pick random ones. It's half women. It's so much of that. And it was just very fun. But Dido's was specifically like great. And so she's just like in the wind on this cocktail glass. It's so great. Oh, that's so cool. That's amazing. And I do think like, when we did some of these myths, even people you think you know their story, both Jenny and I tried really hard to look at them from the lens in which we our podcast exists. So either the cultural history or the historical context, like Dido is the sort of person who may or may not have really existed because she does appear in coinage. Yeah, she's fascinating because it's really like 50-50. Like, was she real? And it's not even totally clear how much mythologically she existed. But like at the same time, she did. Like, she is such an enigma and I love her for it. So cool. We have different sidebars, either historical or an extra myth or, you know, we want to give you a bonus content. And one of my favorite was, did Baba Yaga's chicken legged house, because she had a house with chicken legs, really exist in history? There actually were houses with those chicken legs because it had to do with these nomadic people in sort of different areas of Russia and Slavic countries where Baba Yaga comes from, where they had a lot of flooding and animals. So they built these things on kind of spindly looking chicken legs. Like they weren't actual chicken legs. They were like still houses. Well, some of them were like carved into like trees. They were very interesting looking. They had to be above a tide line too. So the idea is they built them and they had these trap doors like Baba Yaga. So their food could be safe and kept above the ground while they were off foraging. And then when they came back, they just got in however through their trap door and the animals couldn't get in. So you didn't see a door. So it seems like this is a you know magical house with no door. Mm, so they have you can see where they got it from. That's the kind of stuff you're going to have in this book, because like there was a lot of things I didn't know. And I was like, well, that's a cool fact. So shall we talk about where, how and when people can get the book? Tell everyone where to buy it. Pre-orders are key. Pre-order, pre-orders. I'm just going to put my little publishing hat back on. As someone who worked in publishing for a long time, pre-orders make the difference between whether we get to write more books in the future, whether this book succeeds or fails. How much marketing resources they put behind it, you know, how excited people are about it. So it's really important to get pre-orders in as much as possible prior to when it launches. So we're really hoping that people will pre-order the book and we will be periodically reminding you. Pre-order that shit, everyone. An interesting thing from the publishing side, too, because I think it helps to kind of understand why, is like, yes, marketing and stuff is because they can see that people are interested. But aside from that, it also all pre-orders count as sales on the first day. And so those sales go through actually as like sales on the first day that the book comes out, which means that you are as likely as you're going to be to be on bestseller lists, small bestseller lists, certainly for a book like this, mine was the same. It was like, but you can get on like fun local bookstore bestseller lists. Like it's such a huge thrill. And that's because pre-orders can be a big day's worth of sales because of however many people do it. You know, it, it helps a lot on Amazon and stuff too. It just makes a huge difference. So the book comes out August 2nd, 2022, and you can pre-order it prior to that. Um, Jen, where can you pre-order it? We will have a dedicated page up on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, which will have links to as many different countries as we're able to link to. However, you will be able to buy it worldwide. If you don't see it on your Amazon or in your local bookshop, 
go in and tell them because they can have this book worldwide. It's in worldwide English. And it's on Amazon. We'll provide links. It's super easy. Just click that pre-order button and you will be set. You can buy it everywhere. Every bookstore can access it. Even if you don't see it on the shelf, they can order it in for you. It's awesome. And it will be available as both an ebook and a hardback, a really lovely hardback. I'm coming to you from the UK. I've already checked. It's on Waterstones. Make my day and pre-order from Waterstones or from bookshop.org, which is where all of our local indies get their sales from. I will make sure I look after our social that I put up, bookshop.org and other indie places for both sides of the Atlantic. And we really hope that you pre-order. The reality is this does make a massive difference. Exactly. Support your local indies too. Yeah. And we're so excited that we got to do it. And we're so excited Liv got to be with us for all of it and write our forward and be such a huge part of this. It's so <laughs> exciting, you guys. Seriously, congratulations. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Liv, for coming on here and talking about the experience of this book. Liv, you have a pluggable that's real timely right now. Where can people get the most epic of epic cocktail books? You can buy it everywhere. You just have to ask, which is exactly like these ladies' wonderful book. It's a funny experience because they only give us links for certain countries. So then people think you can't buy it. And I understand why you think that. And it sucks. But I promise you can buy it everywhere. For me, you can buy signed copies from a local bookshop here in Victoria called Monroe's Books. Um, it is Monroe, M-U-N-R-O, books.com, and they ship signed copies. And thank you all for listening. We will see you, I guess, whenever we drop a new episode. And the Prosecco's almost gone. <laughs> <laughs>